Our passage this morning is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, verses 1 through 10. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lahish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Yoha, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I have come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord. The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Good morning. It's great to be together on this second Sunday of Easter season when we celebrate the God who makes life, who brings life out of death. It's the same God, as we know, who created the world just by His Word, right? He spoke and the universe came into existence. And He made a good world, didn't He? He made a world that He, in Genesis 1 and 2, He said, after He'd finished creating, He said, this is good. In fact, this is very good. Everything that He made, He looked around and said, this is good. The world was full of His presence it was full of his life. Everything that he made demonstrated in some way his love for humanity and for his creation. Everything was good in the sense that it demonstrated who God is. It showed God off. And then Genesis 3 happens. And the serpent shows up. The serpent who is more crafty than any beast of the field. And he shows up and talking to Eve, he says... And I can just imagine this scene. I imagine like Ursula with Ariel, right? If you remember the Little Mermaid. And 
And Ursula has her tentacles like wrapped around Ariel, and Ariel's fighting her. It's a disgusting scene, right? That's that's the kind of scene I'm picturing. The serpent is wrapping himself around Eve, and and the serpent says, "Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden?" And the idea there is right. This isn't really that good, is it? God made it good, and and the serpent is causing Eve to question that. And she says, no, no, he said we could eat of any tree except this one. We shouldn't touch it either. And she's starting to get confused. And the serpent knows he has her. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. Look, you're going to be like God. You are going to be made like God when you eat that fruit. And the enemy seduces Eve, right? He's got his arms wrapped around her. Look, you're going to be more like God. It's going to go really well for you. You are going to have the same power that God has. You're going to have control of your own life. The reality is, the enemy can't win unless we allow ourselves to be seduced by him. If Eve had, if Eve had just said, no, I'm not interested in that fruit, God said no, then the, the enemy can't win that battle. The enemy can't win unless we submit to his seductions. God wins by creating new realities. The enemy tries to seduce us away from truth. God just makes new truth. In some, That sounds awkward. Um, God creates new realities. He makes something new out of what we destroyed, and what the, the enemy destroyed. This is what we're looking at over the next two weeks. This week and next week, we're looking at a battle over humanity, over Hezekiah and Judah, a battle of words between the enemy and God. The enemy can't win unless Hezekiah allows himself to be seduced by, by the enemy. God can win just by speaking and creating something new with his speech. But the question that we will look at and that Hezekiah has to wrestle with is this. Who are we going to trust? Is there a reason to trust the Lord? Or are we left trying to survive alone in a world without His help? Do we really have to do it on our own power? Eve and Adam decided to eat the fruit and decided, I want to be like God. The question for us is, can we rest in Jesus and in the Lord who speaks His word to us? Pray with me as we walk into this passage. Lord God, you spoke creation into being. We are in awe of your power. When we ruined it by being seduced by the enemy, you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. We give you thanks and praise that Jesus was not like Adam and Eve, but Jesus submitted to you all the way to the cross. We have new life in Him. We have a a new love relationship with You, a new covenant with You because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And You raised Him from the dead. You make new life all the time. So we give You thanks and praise. Father, help us to hear Your Word to us this morning as we study this passage. And would we become more and more like Jesus and able to reject the seductions of the enemy. We love You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in Isaiah for a while now. For the last 30 chapters or so, 
Assyria has been the constant threat. Assyria, coming from the north, has been attacking... Uh, first Israel, they destroyed the nation of Israel. Now they're coming into Judah, the southern kingdom, and they've essentially wiped out the whole kingdom. Basically, there are two, maybe two, fortified cities, two strong cities left in the whole southern kingdom of Judah. The, Kuda, the, the kingdom of Judah is essentially wiped out. Over the t- past 25 to 30 years, Isaiah has been telling the kings and the nation of Judah, trust in God, don't compromise your faithfulness with other nations. Assyria, Israel, Syria, Egypt, don't trust them, trust the Lord. Uh, In chapter 7, King Ahaz was totally faithless. And in fact, he invited Assyria to come defend Judah. And that led to the situation that we have in, in chapter 36. Assyria starts coming down, they're not going to stop. Like, they're going to destroy Judah too. They like taking over and destroying people. That's what they do. So in chapter 36, the army, most of the army is camped at Lachish. And it's attacking, that's one of the few remaining cities left. Sennacherib, the king, sends his field commander, his chief commander, the Rabshakeh, to push for Hezekiah to surrender. If Hezekiah surrenders, that makes this a much easier battle for Sennacherib. So our passage today, plus our passage next week, amounts to one single war of words between Assyria and the Lord. Who has the best words and who can back up their words with reality? So we're going to walk through the Rabshakeh, the field commander's argument, in verses 4 to 10 now. And then look at how uh, Israel, sorry, verses 4 to 20. And then look at how Israel responds and then the Lord's response. So the Rabshakeh's argument, and the Rabshakeh has got to be the best villain name, right? Like it's just so good. Um, And some of your translations will say field commander, some will say chief cupbearer, and some will say Rabshakeh. The Hebrew is Rabshaka. It means chief cupbearer. But in the Assyrian uh, uh, army, in the, in the Assyrian uh, hierarchy, the chief cupbearer had come to be something like the number two or three position in the whole kingdom. So he was more like, he functioned like a field commander. So that's why the translation differences. I'm going to go with Rabshaka because awesome. Um, the Rabshaka's job is to come seduce the people away from their first love. That's his job here. A seduction scene that we're about to read. His job is to make them question their commitment to the Lord and submit to Assyria instead. We'll see this more clearly next week, but next week we'll we'll see that Isaiah really writes this whole scene as a kind of contest between lovers. Between the Lord who loves and is engaged to Judah and wants what's best for them, versus Assyria, who wants to use, abuse, and destroy Judah. Two kinds of lovers, right? One wants to seduce, one wants to um, win with their love and care. He begins his speech in verse 4, says, On what do you rest this trust of yours, or what is this confidence that you have? The Hebrew is even more clear about what this is about. The Hebrew says, 
What is this trust that you're trusting? Trust is the key word in this whole speech. It occurs seven times in verses 4 to 10. This is about trust. Who are you going to trust? Can you really trust the Lord? Right? Satan's uh, strategies have not changed since the garden. Same strategies that we're going to face today, right? Can you really trust God or, can, or should you take control for yourself? Try and put yourself in the driver's seat. Be like God yourself. So his arguments begin in verse 6. Look, you're trusting in Egypt? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through these arguments and just listen for the truth or the falsehood of these arguments. Because it's interesting how true the arguments actually are. Egypt can't save you, he says. Now, his language here, that broken reed of a staff which pierces the hand of any man who leads on him, that could be out of Isaiah's speeches for the last 30 chapters, couldn't it? If you've been reading Isaiah, you know, Isaiah could have said the same thing. The Rob Shaka begins with a true argument. It is true. If Judah relies on Egypt, they will fail. Egypt is not uh, going to protect Judah. So his first argument is true. Second, you know, second argument the Lord's not going to protect you because you tore down his high places. Now, this goes back to, to this religious reform that Hezekiah has been leading over the last several years, where Israel had built up high places to the Lord. And I want to make that distinction. Some high places in the history of Israel were to other gods. At this, in this uh, season of Israel and Judah's life, there were high places to the Lord. It was like, I don't want to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, so I'm going to build an altar in my backyard. Now, the Lord had commanded that the only place where sacrifices should be done was at the temple in Jerusalem. So this is worship to the Lord, just done improperly. And the Rab Shaka is right. Hezekiah, in his religious reforms, has been tearing down these high places. Now, this surely was controversial in Judah. Right? If I have an altar in my backyard to the Lord, and the king far away comes to tell me to tear it down, uh, that's not going to go well f- with me. Because now I'm going to have to go all the way to the temple to worship, whereas I could just worship here. So, when the Rabshaka says, the Lord's not going to protect you because you tore down his high places. Now, a good percentage, and Hezekiah knows this, a good percentage of the people would have said, no, no, that's false. Yes, we tore down the high places, but that's because that's what God told us to do. But some of them, surely, standing on the wall listening to this speech, would have said, was that a stupid thing we did? Maybe the Lord won't protect us. In other words, this is a, the facts are true. Hezekiah tore down the high places. His interpretation is wrong. The Lord is going to protect Israel, but it's going to feel true. This argument will feel true to a whole bunch of people standing on the wall. Does that make sense? Okay, his third argument. He says, here, take 2,000 horses, we'll still kill you. We're still much stronger than you. In fact, you won't even be able to put riders on those horses. You don't even have the guys... 
that are capable of using the horses in battle. So we're still going to kill you. In other words, Judah is like this backwoods country. If, if, if somebody put like a missile in front of me here, I would have no way of knowing how to use that missile. Right? That's the position Judah's in. Assyria is offering them the best weaponry available and says, go ahead, we'll still destroy you. And that's another true argument. If this is a battle of military versus military, Assyria will destroy Israel no matter how many nuclear weapons Israel gets their hands on because Israel doesn't know how to use them. The Rabshakeh is piling up true arguments to say, really, you should surrender. This is not going to go well for you. The next argument. In fact, the Lord's not going to protect you because the Lord sent us here to destroy you. That's also true. Isaiah's been saying the same thing for 25 chapters, hasn't he? At this point, um, the Hezekiah, the delegation that Hezekiah sent out, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, they get nervous. And so they say, can you please stop talking in Hebrew? Because the guys on the wall can hear you, and we don't want to freak them out. And the Rabshaka says, my whole purpose is to freak out the guys on the wall. So he starts yelling at them in Hebrew. He says, look, if you don't want to eat your own dung and drink your own urine, you should come on down off the wall. Let's turn over Hezekiah. This is going to go much better for you if you just surrender now. Right? It's this funny scene in some ways, and terrifying in others. Um, and then he kind of lays out, the Rav Shaka lays out the plan. Look, you surrender now, you'll go home to your homes, and you'll eat the fruit of your vineyard now, and then next year we'll come back and we'll move you to another place. That's actually true. That is how Assyria worked for those people that they didn't kill, which was, you know, a lot of the people. They would, Assyria probably at this point would have wiped out the leadership of Judah, but then the soldiers on the wall could have gone home and then been transplanted to another region uh, soon. So at this point, the Rabshakeh has piled up a whole bunch of essentially true arguments, right? The facts are all basically true of what he said so far. He's missed uh, one interpretation, one key one. And this final argument that he makes, he misses something really important. His final argument is, look, we've destroyed all the gods of all the nations so far. What makes you think, like, the Lord is just another one of these gods that we've been destroying for the last 50 years. We know how to destroy gods. Gods can't stand up to us. The Lord is just like the rest of them. We're going to destroy him too. He can't protect you. You can't trust the Lord. It is true that Assyria has been destroying all the gods of the nations. The big untruth here is that the Lord is not like the other gods. The Lord is the God who created the universe. So he's, you know, in a different category than the idol that some guy put up on his mantle. 
Other than that, this is an essentially true seduction scene. He tells a whole bunch of true things, a whole bunch of correct facts, but he gets that one key point wrong. Um, Oswald, in his commentary on this, points out the heart of the debate here. This speech, says Oswald, directly challenges all that Isaiah had said. God is not the sovereign, righteousness will not prevail. It's the nations of man with whom all must come to terms. It's rare that the challenge is put to us so bluntly, but it comes to us in one form or another every day. We're tempted to think that God either cannot or will not help us, and that we must rely on or at least bow to human strength. Whom shall we trust? God or man? That's the heart of the matter, isn't it? Do we trust God? Or do we trust that Assyria really is everything that it looks to be? That is way more powerful than me and there's no way out for Judah. If that's the question, whom shall we trust, God or man? The modern world, the world that we live in, into the postmodern world, has decided very firmly on we're going to trust man and not God. Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli historian, says that the modern world is a pretty simple deal. Humans agree to give up meaning in exchange for power. Basically, we've, as a culture, decided to eat the apple, right? We can be like gods. Again, the Rabshaka is trying to seduce the people of Judah. Truth sprinkled with falsehood, but mostly truth. The words of the enemy when interpreted in this kind of way, can seduce us. He can persuade us to believe untruths if we let him. But again, the Rabshaka only wins if the Lord's people let him win, allow themselves to be seduced. The same way that Eve was in the garden, the way that Israel's kings have been for the last, I don't know, few hundred years at this point. Israel's kings were always being seduced by the, the gods of other nations. Or like Solomon was seduced by his wives to worship other gods. Or like Ahaz in chapter 7 was seduced to trust in the power of the nations and not to trust in God. Mercifully, we worship a king now who was not seduced when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He rejected Satan's seductions. He was not seduced on trial before the chief priests. He rejected the opportunity to get out of going to the cross. Mercifully, we worship a God, we worship King Jesus, who refused to be seduced. But what kinds of seductions does the enemy use on us today? There are several. One key one we've already kind of mentioned, we are seduced to give up meaning or transcendence in exchange for power or control. We've given up our sacred stories in order to become like gods ourselves. Money and control over our future, uh, money as a way of control over our future, right? If I have enough money for my retirement, then I won't have to face uncertainty when I get there. If I have enough money in the bank now, then any uncertainty or chaos that I face today, I have control over it. And if we have enough money, then do we really need God? Another way we're seduced is to give up faithfulness in exchange for relevance. It's so important to have an impact. 
I'm willing to do anything to make a difference. So we see politicians who make that kind of move all the time. I had to get involved in the shady deal so that I could continue changing the world. But Christians who seek relevance often end up giving up core things. A couple generations ago, the liberal theologians gave up things like the virgin birth and the resurrection. In our day, it's sexual ethics and technology. We're also seduced to give up virtue in exchange to be popular. It's so important to belong. And all the other kids or cool people or important people in my field are doing it. And virtue is old-fashioned anyway. Who cares? We're, we're seduced to give up love in exchange for pleasure. Pornography is a great example of this. Instead of love with my spouse, uh, I seek pleasure. We're seduced to give up deep relationships with others for infinite connectivity. Always being connected. I remember uh, several years ago, right after we were first married, uh, Grace and I were out at a restaurant, and I remember watching this other table. This guy was on a date. I assume he was on a date. And he had this earpiece in his, in his ear, and he was on the phone basically the whole time. And I was so mad at him. And now we all do it all the time. Right? We've all got our phones out. Oh, yeah, nice to see you. Glad we're on a date. But I want to know who's winning the ball game. I was angry at him then, but now we're all doing it all the time. I'm connected everywhere without being deeply connected anywhere. It feels like very little has changed since the garden, right? The enemy is using the same strategies, and we're falling for them in just the same ways. The Rabshaka's seduction and the seductions that we face today still center around that same question that the serpent asked Eve. Do you trust God or do you want to be like God now? So that's the question for us. Do we really trust God? Can he really take care of us? Is my allegiance really to him or to myself? Is he Lord or am I? How do we demonstrate our trust in the Lord? I find... Judah's response to the Rabshakeh really interesting. What are we supposed to do when evil comes at us? For me, when I thought about what I would like to see, I, I want us to always be like David in the face of Goliath. Hey, let's go take evil down. Let's go destroy him. I got to do something. Judah does not respond that way here, do they? Judah is silent, it says. They go, Hezekiah goes to the temple and then he goes and asks Isaiah to pray. In other words, he goes to the Lord. Instead of do something, it's silence, lament, and repentance. We're not always called to be David in the face of Goliath. We are always called to turn to the Lord. Right? If I was being seduced... Would my wife rather hear from me, hey, there's this girl that's been trying to seduce me at work. Um, I just told her no, but we still hang out. Would she rather hear that or would she rather hear, hey, honey, there's someone trying to seduce me. Um, could you pray for me now? I'm going to leave, but I just need your help. Which do you think builds trust and intimacy more? Going to your spouse or telling them after the fact? Right? Right? Hezekiah goes straight to the Lord. 
He's fearful. He's not sure what's going to happen, but he, he acts the right way. He goes to his Lord. He goes to the source of his power. He goes to the one that he really trusts. He doesn't try to argue with the Rabshaka. He goes to the Lord. Most kings in Israel's history had not prepared themselves to act this way. Most kings just did what they wanted until things got hard and then they were in trouble. Hezekiah has been preparing. He, he led this religious reform. He's been preparing for years for this. Are we preparing ourselves now for that life-changing moment in the future? What are we doing now to prepare ourselves to say yes to the Lord when that moment comes? How are we aligning our hearts with the Lord and away from the world, right? Some practical ideas, again, we've talked about the internet. Um, most of my generation and younger is addicted to our devices and the internet and all stuff, right? We, we have it when we go to bed. Uh, we have our phones with us when we go to bed. When we wake up in the morning, we have it over meal times. We've got, we're checking our emails, something like, I read a stat, something like 85 times a day. It's a lot. We're addicted. If you're older than my generation, there's less a chance that you're addicted to the internet. It's more likely, according to the data, that you're addicted to the news. I've been in several homes where the news is just on. Always. Right? The news is just constantly going. Guess what the news is trying to do to you? Do you know? The news's goal is to make us anxious so that we buy stuff. Right? That's their purpose. And I'm not against the news. I should say that. Like, the news is valuable for us. But if we have it on all the time, if that's what's constantly feeding us, feeding our souls, we're going to be more anxious and maybe more likely to buy stuff. I don't know. We have these addictions. Grace and I, for, for several years now, have been doing no Facebook Fridays where... Um, we uh, disconnect in a whole bunch of ways. So for Grace, uh, the hard part was getting off Facebook. For me, it was sports. Like not checking sports all day was really difficult. Um, but I found that when I'm not checking the scores on Friday, then my Saturday is different, right? Because I'm not planning Saturday around what times the games are going to be on I'm much more available to my family on Saturday when I'm not looking at the scores on Friday. It's interesting the way that has worked for, for us. So I invite you to join us as one way of preparing. We have to fast in some way from our addictions. I suggest you, I invite you, I suggest some kind of fast. Pick a day of the week. Join us for no Facebook Fridays. Or... Um, Limit, say no phones or news during mealtimes or at bedtimes, morning or night, right? Limit your exposure to the world's seductions. These are ways that the world is trying to seduce us. Limit your exposure to them. We have to know what's happening in the world. I get that. But do we really trust that I need to be in control, that I need to know now what's happening all the time? Or do we trust that the Lord is really taking care of it? It's interesting the way the Lord takes care of this situation. We're going to see a whole lot more of the word from the Lord next week. There's not actually 
not actually um, much here. In fact, Isaiah's response to this situation is, eh, Lord's got it, you'll be fine, basically. He gives him a verse and a half or something. You'll be fine, don't worry about it. But the, when the Lord speaks, it comes true. Reality changes. When, when the Lord, through Isaiah, says to Hezekiah, don't worry about it, it's going to be fine, things change. The reality is, it's going to be fine for Judah, because the Lord said it would be. Again, we'll look significantly more at this next week, because the whole passage, or most of the passage, is about the Lord's response to Assyria. His speaking makes life out of death. It makes new creation. Just like uh, when you name a child, right? Before you name it, before you speak the words, the name of the child, that child has no name. And then when you speak the name of the child, that child now has a name. New reality has actually taken shape. Pastors think about this in weddings. Before I say I pronounce you husband and wife, there's not a marriage. And then I say it and there's a marriage. It's really interesting. That's the power that the Lord has. He can create new situations just by speaking it. So here's the deal. The Lord is trustworthy. He is a faithful fiancé who wants the best for us. He will defend and care for His people even though circumstances look terrible. And circumstances are terrible. But He loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. And just like He was able to raise Jesus from the dead, He will also raise us. We're going to end with a time of communion, which I think is a perfect way to end. Pretty much any service, but this one. The Lord's Supper that we're about to take together is an opportunity for us to reaffirm our allegiance, commitment, and covenant with the Lord who loves us. He's not trying to use and abuse and destroy us. He loves us. He wants the best for us. It's a chance for us to say that we reject all other lovers and we refuse to be seduced by the enemy. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, Jesus' life is in us, making us new. Communion represents that new covenant of love in His blood. Like a marriage. It's a new covenant. He's making a new thing out of us by speaking His life into us. So in our celebration of communion today, we remember the words of Jesus, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Those who believe in me will never thirst. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them at the last day. And we will experience together the wedding feast of the Lamb. I'm going to begin with a prayer of confession. Almighty God, You are Lord of all creation. We desire to submit ourselves to You, yet in the depths of our souls we find ourselves resistant to You. We allow ourselves to be seduced by the world and forget that You are our first love. Forgive us our sins and deliver us from them. Deliver us from jealousy of those whose lot in life seems easier than our own. Protect us from thinking lightly and taking lightly the talent you have given us because you have not given us more. Set us free from pride. Protect us from undisciplined thoughts. Set us free from unwillingness to learn and unreadiness to serve. By the power of your Spirit at work within us, 
Grant that we may see the triumph of your will over our own for the sake of your eternal purposes. To you, O Lord, we commend our souls through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.